Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. Today is December 6th, 2016. My name is Mariana Dellinger and I'm a professor of law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today, I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Armin Haas of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies, IASS, in Potsdam, Germany. Dr. Haas is the co-lead of IASS's Economics and Culture Program. I'll be discussing that with him today, as well as his take on smart energy grids for the future. Dr. Haas, welcome. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so you've written on something that you call the super smart electric grid. Can you explain to people what that is and what uh, what you think the benefits of that is? Well, basically, this is what in uh, the US and North America is known as a super grid. In uh, Europe, the thing was a bit different because in Europe, we had this uh, very strong divide between uh, the super grid and the smart grid community. So supergrid in Europe means a wide area approach so that you basically connect the whole continent and uh, uh, use the renewables where they are abundant. So uh, wind at the coastline, sun in the south, biomass where it's available and then basically connect the whole continent uh, for making the grid stable. The smart grid community was a bit different. Smart grid basically means small is beautiful. This means local use of uh, renewable uh, electricity, small scale, uh, probably consumers producing electricity, um, not big grids, not wide area. And uh, it was very interesting to see that uh, these two communities basically fought bitterly against each other. We looked into that for some time and then made up our mind that this is not really reasonable what we see. And so we tried to bridge between the communities by inventing, for the European purpose, the super smart grid, combining the super grid approach and the smart grid approach into a unique, comprehensive, uh, integrated approach. Okay, and uh, what are the benefits of such an integrated approach over the existing models? Again, if you could elaborate a little bit on how you see this being something different for the future. Yeah, well, when we looked into the, into the whole subject from both the technological side and from the economics and from the social side, to, it, to us it was immediately clear that the, the super grid and the smart grid approach in the European definition, they are complementary. Mm-hmm. It's basically obvious when you when you don't use ideological blinders. So, and, and we need to combine the two approaches if you really want to go for a fully renewable system. So I think that this was the obvious step to go. And so we did this step and suggested the super smart grid as a combined uh, approach. And so that combines with what exactly? So the idea I take it from your writing is to uh, to have more sort of on-demand technology or on-demand energy production, not on-demand, but that you could you could route at different places and communicate back and forth between users and producers. Yeah, but the big big elephant in the room when it comes to renewables is intermittency. Mm-hmm. So when the sun shines, you get photovoltaics. When the wind blows, you get uh, uh, electricity from windmills. Okay, but now the uh, uh, people who do not like uh, renewables basically point to this issue. They're intermittent. Mm-hmm. What do you do when the sun uh, won't shine? What do you do when the wind won't blow? Mm-hmm. So, and uh, there is a straightforward answer to that. You need a wide area. Mm-hmm. Why? Because if the larger uh, you make the area, 
mm-hmm. uh, the more you have what the experts call the stochastic smoothing, mm-hmm. which basically means somewhere the wind always blows. And uh, uh, the sun, that's a little bit different because then you need to keep, uh, 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 to get in storage or another trick how to do it. But the thing is, the basic message is, the wider the area, the less you have a problem with the intermittency of things. How do you think that plays in in areas such as the United States, where some states may not want to send their energy to other states, right? So there's a lot of sunshine in the American Southwest, there's a lot of wind in Texas, but they may not want to to help out. They want to keep it within the state. Oh, that's quite quite easy. Um, There is quite some work from uh, the uh, systems engineers in in the electricity community. And of course, you can model that. They call that energy systems model. And then you can basically play around with uh, uh, exactly these questions. And the basic message is, of course, you can go for autarky, but it's bloody expensive. Mm-hmm. So it's technically it's possible, mm-hmm. but it's not advisable. Hmm. So of course, but that's a, uh, a matter of preferences. If someone really wants to go for autarky, well, they are fine to do that. And what do you? How do you define that autarky? What is that? Well, in the in the strict definition, you just stick to uh, your local area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in the in and there are people who actually advocate that. So, just uh, be self self sufficient in your village, and just produce the electricity that you need in your village, in your village. So that's that's the extreme form, and there are people who really are, are serious about that. It's possible, of course, it's possible. Uh, however, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. So you see the advantages being more, you know, broad scale implications or economies of scale within uh, energy production. Yes, and there, there's a there's a famous piece of work in of, of 2005. Actually, it was a PhD uh, thesis. Uh, there's a friend of mine who uh, built his own energy system model exactly for playing around with the system and asking the uh, question: What well, is it actually possible? Mm-hmm. to uh, provide all of Europe with renewable energy, 100%. Is it possible, technically? The answer is yes. Huh. But the next question is, okay, how expensive is it? And he made a quite extreme assumption because he used the technology cost of 2005. And he showed that a 100% renewable system basically is not more expensive than the system that we have. Wow. And now, of course, this uh, uh, this uh, work was rather uh, uh, controversially discussed. But as far as I understand, his basic uh, assumptions hold, and uh, and also his conclusion holds. And this is remarkable. But and the caveat is, he reused all of Europe plus North Africa. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's that's the trick. Why? Because well, it's renewables. Right. So and you need to uh, have this stochastic smoothing in say quite a large area, because for example, in uh, the north in Europe, basically we have a lot of wind in winter. Mm-hmm. In the North Africa, you have a lot of wind in summer. So you see, when you combine the two areas, it's technically perfect. The political issue that's another dimension. And there, I think, the big advantage of North America comes into play. So for political reasons, I think many people would be very reluctant to see a renewable system in Europe and North Africa as a joint venture. So people would get nervous. But in Northern America, so just the US alone, I think, is in the perfect position to 
actually accomplish this wide area approach and it's just within the US. So there is no big political risk unless you uh, uh, think about California uh, splitting from the US and things like that. But if we, if we discard that, well, it's just a one country approach. So that's politically much easier than in Europe. And the same goes for China. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I really like the uh, approach of my friend with uh, his uh, uh, energy system model. But I told him frankly into his face, it was, we will see that, mm-hmm. but not in Europe first. Europe so first. no, it's, it's the US and China who are going for, for that sometime. Right. Very difficult to predict when. Right. So to push back uh, or on that a little bit or to play the devil's advocate a little mm-hmm. bit with the US position... Uh, that I'm more familiar with mm. than that of China. Uh, yes, it's one country, uh, but as we're seeing, there's a lot of uh, current resistance towards federal model, federal models and federal regulations and so forth, um, and a lot of discussions as of states' rights and you know decisions that really should be made in each individual of the 50 states. Um, so even though, yes, it's one country, do you think it might still be uh, difficult to... It, it, I guess what I'm asking is, is it necessary to have a federal government oversight or is it possible that the states themselves in the United States could uh, could get together if they agreed on it and and uh, and create such a grid? And do well, you think they might agree on it? Yeah, well, I'm aware of the fact that in the US, energy policy is basically a matter of on the level of the states. So and I'm, and the thing is that I'm a, a federalist in the European sense. So I, I really like the, uh, the 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 basic scheme of subsidiarity. So whatever can be decided on the lower level should rest with the lower level. So definitely, I'm not a federalist in the U.S. sense. And of course, the thing is the idea that. Uh, someone in Washington is going to impose a super smart grid onto uh, the people in the US. That's lunatic. Yeah. Of course, yeah. that will never happen. Yeah. No, uh, it will only be a viable scheme when you uh, uh, see coalitions of willing states that team together. And I'm quite sure that uh, we will see local initiatives first. It's the same with whatever you think about uh, emissions trading. But we've, we've seen it in the US. There were states willing to engage in the emissions trading. And they teamed up. And it was not imposed from the federal level right. onto the states. Right. What, however, however you like um, uh, uh, the, uh, emissions trading or not. But you, you can see there is room for an initiative bottom-up. And I think that is something that we can we will see at least when renewables become uh, much cheaper than they today are. Given some willingness to again to cooperate, but you say that the states might see the benefits in cooperating because it's a matter of give and take that you could you know supply sell to other states when you have extra supply, but then get some back when when you have a need for it. Yes, of course. And the thing is. Uh, well, the, the question is about what is the priority in, 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 in policy? Mm-hmm. Well, and the thing is, if you really want to get serious about energy independence, well, then I think you should be willing to cooperate. Mm-hmm. So, and again, of course, you can be energy independent and apply renewables small scale and get uh, uh, autark. That's possible, but it's so expensive. I don't think that this is a viable option in for uh, for in the foreseeable time. No, it's really about you. If you want to be energy independent, I think renewable will play a, 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 a their share, 
um, the share will be growing and eventually you need to go for a wide area. This is at least how I see it. Of course, it could there could be breakthroughs that could make Autarchy viable. I can't rule that out. But judging from what is currently uh, uh, available, I think the likelihood is much uh, bigger that we see a wide area approach. That sounds interesting. Uh, what kind of environmental consciousness, as you've talked about before, do you think is uh, required within the governance systems in this respect? And do you think an environmental consciousness, as we're seeing the political rhetoric shift from the environment and future concerns much more towards jobs and national economy and and the na uh, national security. So what kind of environmental conscious, or do you think rather that environmental consciousness is still viable, applicable, and even relevant in uh, the age of the Anthropocene? Well, um, things get tricky when you basically uh, perceive green stuff as opposed to uh, jobs and growth. So and I think in, in the current shift in uh, of mood is when you perceive it from this side, yeah, you can really get nervous when you like to see green uh, perspectives uh, strengthened. But I think this is a misperception. Um, but this is a big debate. It's a big debate in, in, in uh, the sustainability community whether green growth is possible or not. I definitely think it is possible. And I think the, uh, the, 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 the contrast of greenness and, uh, and uh, 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 thrift, uh, this is artificial. Um, of course, it's a debate and I take sides. I definitely take the side of green growth. I do not buy in all the uh, nice dreams of it, but I think basically it's possible. And the question is how you can actually uh, make it happen. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of that, though, is uh, about the economy, let's just be mm -hmm. honest, and, and uh, pricing and so forth. Do you think that uh, hope is possible, so to speak, from a purely market-based approach that uh, some uh, government leaders such as Trump and others might uh, prefer? Or do you think there's some reforms of the global finance system that are required to mobilize a larger scale investment uh, into a green infrastructure such as uh, smart grids and super smart grids? Well, actually both. But this leads us deeply into ideological territory. Uh, so typically, you have two, two sides, two tribes, uh, one telling you that it's all free markets that are, uh, are going to accomplish the job and the state is very inefficient and basically incompetent and uh, either you go for free markets or forget about it. The other would tell you, well, that uh, uh, you definitely need the, uh, the state to coordinate actors and the state needs to have a, a leading role in leading the, the direction and all that. And I think, uh, as often, the truth is somewhere in between. So a colleague of mine, Mariana Matsukato, has actually looked into how innovation systems really work. And she looked into the US and she looked into the UK. And it's quite clear, it's neither just markets or just the state. And the perfect example for an innovation system is Silicon Valley. And basically, Silicon Valley was created by uh, the Department of Defense and Department of Energy. This is basically an operation that was triggered by the state, but not run by the state. That's the crucial thing. You have a rather complex interaction between state actors and private actors, and that's basically uh, what we see when we look into that. And 
in a way, Silicon Valley is the, say, the, the, uh, the, the structure, the hub, the region that is basically admired in all the world. And basically the Europeans dreamed a lot for, of creating their own Silicon Valley, but failed. Uh, and for obvious reasons, because there is no Pentagon in the EU, there is no Department of Energy in the EU. You need to have a, a, a strong state actor with deep pockets to make that happen. But of course, then you have a lot of private actors, and uh, Silicon Valley is uh, is the paradigmatic example of a financial ecology, where you have on one hand entrepreneurs of all stages, from the lunatic dreamers to the multinational established and successful companies, and on the other side, on the financial side, you have agents that are specialized to each of the stages of the entrepreneurial uh, adventures from the beginning from the first vague ideas of a, a, a startup up the whole spectrum up to the multinational corporation and the investment bankers who basically consult them so what i'm hearing you saying is basically that uh, that you as i think we all do believe in the markets and innovation and technology but you do also see that a centralized government Uh, playing a role even financially, if not well, maybe regulatorily, but certainly also financially. Is that a correct understanding? Yeah, but it does not necessarily. Do, uh, 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 it does not need to be the uh, U.S. government uh, right. or say Brussels. Right. So you see, in in Europe, we have the famous German energy transition, Energiewende, world famous. This is just basically driven by Germany. Okay, of, co of course the most uh, economically powerful state in Europe, but even in Europe, uh, the G GDP of Germany is just a quarter of the EU GDP. So you'd, it, it, there was no need to, uh, for the whole EU to go into it. No, um, Germany is actually conducting a very interesting experiment. Is the energy transition actually working, working in Germany? And is it a blueprint for the globe? And these are questions that are still open. We are experimenting with it, and uh, I'm very curious about how this eventually will work out. And whether that model uh, might be emulated successfully in other nations or other regions. Exactly, as, or, exactly. Mm -hmm. So there is, well, there is basically uh, the dream that uh, Germany just leads the way. We show the world how to do it. And I hope that uh, this is going to happen. However, however, there is no guarantee that we succeed. Uh, there is a kind of uh, uh, possible outcome um, that I have on my radar screen as a risk, um, but I think not, not everyone in Germany has that on uh, his or her radar screen. This is that we show the world that yes, it's possible to convert to fully renewable electricity, but uh, the price is too high so that people say, oh, thanks uh, you Germans for showing us that this is not our way. Um, so and that's that's quite a risk that we should have on our radar screen and uh, try to avoid. That sounds interesting. Um, how do you avoid that? I mean, how do you then localize it to cheaper models if the <laughs> markets want cheaper models? Yeah, it, that's the key question. So at the heart of energy transitions is technological learning. And there's a big literature about how technological learning actually works. And this is impressive stuff. And uh, it surprises most people when they look into that first time, including me, because basically it boils down that uh, technology gets cheaper once it is applied. So, and it's interesting, the, the empirical side is very interesting. Basically, 
uh, the most technologies have a constant improvement when you measure them in a total output produced or total or total capacity uh, constructed. And that's impressive because uh, basically you uh, you double the capacity, you get an, in a decrease of uh, unit cost, say of 5%. Mm -hmm. Then you double again the capacity and you still get 5% uh, improvement. And you double again and you still get 5% improvement. So f sitting on your desk, this is not obvious that it would work this way. But this is what my empirical colleagues tell me. There are only very few technologies uh, 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 that are exceptions from this rule. For example, nuclear is an exception. Mm -hmm. Nuclear gets uh, more expensive. Hmm. And there is a big debate why that happened. And of course, it's about the security issue. And so we are we demand more security from the nuclear than we did it 40 years ago and all that. But this is a rather arcane discussion. And it's, a, it's really an exception. So typically, and this is not just energy, this is basically everything. This is uh, uh, chemical products, this is um, uh, consumer equipment, this is energy. Uh, the, the general rule holds that things get cheaper the more is produced or the more is installed. And that's the key. Now, the crucial question then is, can you speed that up at any scale? And I think no. But this is controversially discussed. Mm -hmm. So I think you cannot speed up things in any scale. So the most uh, uh, practical experience we know, uh, pregnancy is nine months. You can't speed it up. So, and does this hold for technology? Well, of course you can speed it up somehow. Mm -hmm. The question is, what is the optimal path? Mm -hmm. of technological mm -hmm. learning mm -hmm. and that's a very interesting uh, question and of course I know my dark green friends who tell me that we need to go for 100% renewables within 10 years time well is it technically possible yes it would be and we know that if societies get under real existential th uh, stress well they are capable of doing quite a lot and the, the most famous example was uh, uh, the US going to war in the 40s. It was amazing to see what could be achieved uh, and what could be produced. And of course, uh, this is only possible actually in very special circumstances. You need a collective will to make it happen. I don't see that in the field of renewable energies, not in Germany, not in Europe, not in the US. So I would say within 10 years time, 100% renewable Ah, dream on. Well, is it possible within 100 years' time? Easy, of course it is. Now the question is, what's the optimal speed? And of course, this is a matter of uh, controversial debate. And I think there is no way to find it out in a strict sense, writing a computer algorithm that calculates you, ah, it's 42 years. Uh, I think that, 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 that this, is, this is mistaken. I think it's... It will be a matter of social learning, of experimenting, and the willingness to yeah, to learn. Mm -hmm. And in that process, maybe also willingness to embrace some uh, technologies that are currently seen as still somewhat risky. For instance, I've talked to some of your colleagues about climate uh, geoengineering, but you mentioned also nuclear power. Mm. Um, do you see that playing any role in the short run, the medium run? the long run, or do you think you called it uh, arcane? Is it just on its way out? 
It depends whom you ask. Mm -hmm. I yeah. ask you. <laughs> what what would you, if in your ideal world, what do you think? Well, the thing is, in Germany, nuclear power is uh, not an option due to, to political reasons. So this is 100% clear. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, every politician who would go for nuclear power would get into serious trouble in mm -hmm. Germany. In Europe, things are mixed. So uh, there are quite some countries who actually follow the German example. Uh, Switzerland, for example, or Austria, they of course are uh, uh, countries where nuclear is uh, seen as a positive thing in France, for example, or now in the UK, mm -hmm. building a new nuclear power plant. And China. Uh, and when you look uh, beyond Europe, of course, the Chinese, the, the Chinese are very pragmatic. They, take, they just take everything. Of course, they build a lot of hydropower and they invest heavily in renewables and they build new coal power fire, uh, coal, uh, uh, fired power plants and they build nuclear power plants. They just take everything. And the same in India. Mm -hmm. Yes, in the US, I think people are rather reluctant about uh, re-establishing nuclear large scale. Mm -hmm. But I understand that this is controversially debated. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. We do have nuclear power, though, but uh, but it might be, I don't know, but some, you know, a way of getting the energy that we need without all the CO2 emissions, though. But it is very controversial because of the perceived dangers and the waste problem. Yes, and there's, there's another thing, it's the, the economics of it. Yes. So when you uh, look into Europe, we see... Uh, uh, some construction sites, one in Finland, one in France, and actually they have a huge cost overrun. Now the question is why? Mm -hmm. And um, there is a rather complex debate. I'm not the expert in, in this debate, but I, I understand that they have lost experience when it comes to building nuclear power plants. So it's no longer the 60s when a lot of power plants were under construction. It's different. The construction industry has changed quite a lot. So uh, a generation, generation ago, the big construction companies basically had all the technology and know-how to build uh, large stuff. For example, power plants, but also other, other uh, construction work. Today, it's a totally different system where we have a lot of outsourcing on several layers. And uh, skilled labor is a big issue, not just in the US, it's also in Europe uh, a, a big thing. And it seems to be that we have lost the ability to uh, manage the big construction sites. There's not just nuclear power, there's this famous uh, um, airport in Berlin that never gets finished. So, but this is definitely not a comfortable uh, idea that you have uh, um, const big construction sites with a lot of problems when you think about nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Because there you want to see precision engineering. Mm -hmm. yeah. But this is a debate. Mm -hmm. But uh, just to give a, a sense, in, uh, the, the cost overrun in Finland is, I think, factor three. So now, is it uh, possible to, uh, to get that uh, uh, online again? Yes, maybe. Maybe not. So I'm not so sure about that. Mm -hmm. So other technologies would be perhaps better focused on, you think? Right. Of course, there's now uh, quite some fancy ideas about new designs for nuclear devices, small scale and whatever. <laughs> Well, I would not rule out that uh, some countries will experiment with that, but I think it's 
rather uncertain issue mm-hmm. how that's going to work out. Mm-hmm. And in Germany, no way. Not, not so no. much. Nope. <laughs> going back to what you talked about before, with uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, politicized aspects of, mm-hmm. uh, of the debate we've had today, uh, you and I here. And I can't help thinking that there are so many great ideas, intellectual, academic, uh, business ideas, uh, a lot of real savvy folks out there. At the same time, though, at least in the United States and also in Europe, we're seeing a shift away from, again, the centralized sort of intellectual, perhaps, aspects of things towards more of a populist, localized, you know, we don't care, we just want jobs, you know, down on earth kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. How do you see, in other words, how do you uh, persuade the general public that really, we, you know, we need these things? What do you say to the people that are really skeptical of all these, you know, environmental discussions and so forth? How do you really persuade them? Because that, I think, is, at least in the United States, over Europe, still the difficulty that people uh, don't place environmental issues very high at all on their agenda. And certainly they're very skeptical towards any sort of big scale, anything it seems these days, whether it's big corporations, big government and so forth. What do you tell those people? Well, first of all, I talked with them. So I think the idea that the elites imposed reasonable stuff onto their people is actually not going to work. So and even when they say, but it's necessary, I think that won't help. So that's the key thing. And people want to uh, 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 be taken serious. And I think that's a very general thing. And I think that's not very different when you look to uh, Italy or to Wisconsin. So take, talk to them, then not uh, like a parent uh, to a child. No, no uh, but uh, say on, on, on even level. That is something that quite a lot of members of the elite are not familiar with and don't like, because they know better what's good for you. And this approach will not yield. That's the key thing. So basically, it's about citizen participation, but taken seriously. It's difficult, though, isn't it? Because I admit I've been one of those that, at least previously, I've firmly believed in you know, the facts and the science and bringing that to the forefront, hoping that people would understand and agree. But maybe they don't. So, so that's the difficulty, though, that, you know, that somehow... Are people, in other words, do you think, willing to learn about some of the realities? Or is it just an entrenched position where you talk about tribes, where there's two tribes and it's just for some reason right now so entrenched that it's just very, very difficult to get people to talk to each other at all? Yes, right. Learning is difficult, but I think for both sides. Uh, The elites are not very good in learning, are they? What do you mean by that? Well, it's just have a look of what happened in the U.S. with mm-hmm. the presidential election. Right. So I think the establishment was just unable to imagine that Trump could make it. Mm-hmm. But he did. Mm-hmm. And when you look into the social technologies, it's quite clear that there is a gap of capabilities between the Hillary camp and the Trump camp. Mm-hmm. So Trump seems to have used uh, a cutting-edge social technology for achieving it, whereas the Hillary camp just relied on um, applied technology. Well, so I think uh, uh, when it comes to social learning, the score goes to Trump, not to Hillary. And um, on a, a very different, a different example uh, we can see in Germany. So, say the Green Movement has quite different routes, but one of the routes is nature, nature conservation. 
So this is about preserving forests, uh, preserving uh, uh, living creatures and all that. Okay. And now we see that in, uh, say, the, the, the current dominant green movement goes heavily uh, into uh, uh, wind energy. And uh, uh, the trend is to uh, build uh, windmills in forests. And there you have a clash within the green movement. Mm -hmm. And you have the, it's now the, the conversationists who want to preserve birds and bats. And basically, uh, they established uh, uh, a green wisdom just disregards them. Well, this is not an example of listening to each other and uh, the willingness to learn. And of course, there is a conflict. Right. Uh, a conflict of values and priorities. Mm -hmm. And what can you do in, when you uh, face such a conflict? Well, you should talk to each other, not just impose your policies. Because that will work for some time, but then you will, with rather high likelihood, see uh, um, uh, at, um, a clash back. Mm -hmm. So, and this is what we already see mm -hmm. in, par in parts of Germany. Yeah. Mm, so I think reasonable green policy should be a bit more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. And with more willingness on both sides, so to of speak, to, to talk and to cooperate with each yeah. other. So maybe to a change of rhetorics and communication styles and how to frame messages. Uh, That's one them. thing, but I think it's, it, it needs to go deeper. Mm -hmm. So, the, I think the key challenge is that when people know that they possess the truth. So, because then they are justified for almost all means to use. And then things get nasty. What do you mean? Yeah, so because then definitely they mobilize resistance to their uh, attitude, and eventually they get exactly the opposite of what they achieve, uh, uh, strive for. That's a kind of self-defeating mm -hmm. device. And uh, uh, we can see that all around, not just in the environmental policy. Uh, we can know that. Mm -hmm. So it's possible. You just need to open your eyes, open your mind, and look around. Mm -hmm. Well, and... Europe is a perfect example with the uh, political elite uh, striving for the European superstate, and now we are at the brink of uh, seeing the whole thing falling apart. Mm, not really a, uh, um, a nice development, but it, it's possible to understand that. Yeah. This is you don't need to be a social scientist for understanding that. You just need to, to use your common sense. Mm -hmm. People are fed up with the existing models and the establishment, as it's called, to a large extent, in the United States at least. Yeah, but the thing in Europe is quite clear. The elite wants the European superstate, but basically the people do not want a European superstate. That's just a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, of course, you can argue that the people just do not understand what's... Uh, 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 what's good about this uh, European superstate. Uh, yeah, okay, but now the, this boils down to a very fundamental question. Do we really like democracy or not? And if we like democracy, well, then you cannot impose such a big issue on the people against their will. 
If you really want to do that, then you need to abolish democracy. But this is not my approach. <laughs> right. And that hasn't proved very historically correct uh, no, it's, to do that either. No, it's, it's say, at least in, in our tradition, this means the Western tradition, it has proven not to be sustainable, yeah. politically sustainable, right. Right. which is good. This right. is what I like to see. So maybe it's, a, like you said yourself, a whole democratic development that's happening right now. Yes. That, that simply is a, a matter of politicians doing what the people really want, and but hopefully also interjecting some of these environmental models and knowledge into that process, hopefully. Yes, of course. And, and, and a lot of people want uh, a, a sustainable world. In, but this means socially sustainable, economically sustainable, and environmentally sustainable. And the question is how we can achieve that, how we can basically keep all the sustainability dimensions addressed simultaneously, and how to balance trade-offs when there are trade-offs, and uh, uh, reconcile the dimensions in a reasonable way. I think that's possible, but now then we have to do it. Mm -hmm. And to get uh, some buy-in from the general public as well, by, like you said, perhaps using different communication strategies, pointing out the, the advantages... Um, and not just focusing on sort of the super elite aspects of these things. And mobilize the wisdom of the crowds. They are not all fools. They know quite a lot. Mobilize that. Good point. Yeah, Indeed. so that's, that, that's, that's definitely a thing. So I think um, the, the approach, we are the elites, we know better. The thing is, it won't work. Mm. Seems to be indeed what we're seeing around the world right now, geopolitically. So you might very well have a point in that respect. Yeah, the thing is, it is not just uh, uh, a political ro romanticism. Well, we know quite something about uh, swarm intellig intelligence and the wisdom of crowds. That's basically one of, well, I would even say the ultimate justification for democracy. That is very true. Good point. So if there, if there would not be any wisdom of the crowds, then forget about democracy go for uh, uh, just find beloved leaders and uh, that will do the trick. This is not my world. Right. I don't think that it's a world of very many people. So thank you so much for your, uh, your views on these issues. And thank you to the listeners for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law podcast. Today I had the great honor and pleasure of interviewing Dr. Armin Haas of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany, about his views on smart electric grids, but also his interesting views on uh, broader ideas about how to develop an uh, ecosystem in the future and energy systems that are truly sustainable. Thank you so very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you.